0: far the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing as we study it together today. Uh, You don't have to be a Christian very long to realize that there are some sins, some issues that we like to imagine are not problems in the church, but only out there in the world. And I bet if we took just a moment, we could all recite the list. We know those those no-nos that are out there and, and probably not in here, right? Homosexuality, drug abuse, abortion, domestic violence, adultery, drunkenness, tax fraud. The list could go on and on. We, we know the sort of things that we, we like to turn to when we say, don't be like those people out there. And Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5 that the sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment. And in the church, we think we've got a pretty good idea what those conspicuous sins look like. But you don't have to be in Christian ministry very long to realize that all the sins we think are problems in the world are also present in the church. They're present in some degree, in some form. They They might be hidden temptations. They might be lingering struggles. They might be a past experience that stalks our waking hours and does not let us rest. Well, in churches like ours, divorce is like that. It's the kind of thing that that carries a stigma, even when it is biblically justifiable. And and we tend sometimes, carelessly so, to to take divorced people and fit them into this category. This is what we think about those kinds of people. Or we simply speak carelessly about the issue of the divorce. Or or we simply imagine that there couldn't possibly be anyone in our midst who is dealing with those issues. But it's present. It exists. It exists. It exists in the church on any given Sunday, in any Christian church. There are people for whom the issues of marriage and divorce and remarriage are very live issues. There are the young people among us who think that they might like to be married someday, and they're, they're wondering, they're asking questions about this culture around them that seems to always be selling marriage as something that is cheap and disposable. There are saved sinners, new creatures in Christ who have an ungodly divorce in their past. And they wonder, is there forgiveness for this as well? There are husbands or wives who may be secretly contemplating an ungodly divorce or contemplating a way out of a marriage that has been edging on despair for far too long. And there are parents who are praying against what seems like an inevitable undoing for their children. And there are children who are praying the same thing about their parents. There are people in any church for whom divorce is a threat, or it's a temptation, or it is a painful memory. And because our King Jesus is gracious, he has spoken on these issues. Our good shepherd has not left us without guidance, and as we see these passages together, my hope is that we will begin to see some of the contours of Jesus' uh, Jesus' theology of divorce. We have to begin, though, especially uh, in Luke 16, we have to begin beneath the surface of the issue. If we're going to understand what divorce is all about, we really have to look uh, to where we look for all of our most difficult problems as they begin in the human heart. That is what Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Obviously, that verse there is is plain teaching on divorce and remarriage, but actually it's not primarily teaching about divorce and remarriage. Primarily, what Jesus is doing with that verse is giving us a window into the human heart. He is pulling back the curtains on legalism and he is showing us how legalism tends to pay lip service to God's law while despising the purpose for God's law consider the context. If you have an ESV, you'll notice that it separates this one verse by that little subheading, which wasn't in the original text, but the editors have added it there, and that is misleading. It's misleading when your pastor several months ago is putting together his sermon preaching series schedule, Uh, and it may be misleading to us as we read it, because actually this isn't a separate issue. This is part of one prolonged conversation. Jesus is dealing with the Pharisees and with their questions that began back in verse 14 when they scoffed at his teaching about serving God rather than money. And actually this conversation goes through the end of the chapter and he will tell us a parable, Lord willing we'll see that when we come back together in January, tells us a parable about serving money rather than God and it's all one, uh, one connected conversation but But there is the primary condemnation of the Pharisees. Jesus declared back in verse 15. He says, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. There's a conflict, he says. There's a conflict between the piety, the the righteousness that you are projecting before the eyes of men, and what's actually happening inside your hearts as you harbor self-seeking lusts in secret. He's saying that these these Pharisees were were not really caring about God's law, but they were using it as a tool for themselves to maintain their own image of righteousness. But they were not willing to submit themselves to the heart of God's commands. And we understand this principle. It's the same principle that we saw back in Luke chapter 11, verse 42. Jesus said, woe to you Pharisees. Because you tithe mint and rue and every herb, but you neglect justice and the love of God. There is a legalism that wants to look good before others, but actually doesn't care very much about God's commandments. That's the context that helps us to understand Luke chapter 16, verse 18. Jesus says, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. There is the presentation, and then there is the reality. There is the self justification, and then there is the issue of your heart. And Jesus, again, is pulling back the curtain on their legalism. He's saying, in effect, that you may think that you are good, law-abiding Israelites as long as all of your divorces and all of your remarriages are filed with the right department, are filed with the right paperwork, as long as you jump through all of the right administrative hoops, you may think that you're doing all that you need to do. But actually, there is a lust hidden in those actions. It might be helpful uh, for us to understand something of the debate going on in Judaism at this time uh, and after this time. Uh, about the issue of divorce. We know from rabbinic sources that Jewish scholars were divided over what circumstances gave Jewish men lawful reasons to send their wives away. The same divide actually is present in that question, Matthew 19, verse 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? This is An ongoing debate, and they're coming and saying, in essence, what's your opinion, Jesus? We've got this hot theological topic, and inquiring minds want to know, are are you on this side of the debate, or are you on that side of the debate? Without getting too far into the weeds, there were essentially two sides. There was a conservative side, and there was a liberal side on this issue of who could divorce whom in Israel at this time. The conservative side followed uh, a rabbi by the name of Shammai, and, and Shammai taught that divorce is only legitimate in the case of actual adultery or some other gross sexual misconduct. The liberal school was quite a bit more liberal. They followed a rabbi by the name of Hillel, and they said that a man could send away his wife for something as insignificant as an improperly cooked meal. Rabbi Akiba, who was a part of that liberal school, went a little bit further. He said, actually, if there is a man, and he's just, he's just kind of tired of his wife, and he notices that there is a younger, more attractive woman, then he's eligible for his, his every two-year upgrade, like a cell phone contract. All you need is is any justifiable reason. I, I no longer want you, and as long as I fill out the paperwork, as long as you find a rabbi who agrees with you, you could claim reasonable grounds to find a way to divorce one's wife for any cause. That's what Jesus is dealing with here. Everett Ferguson is a scholar who studies the cultural backgrounds of the New Testament, and and in one place he talks about some Roman laws, some reforms that were put into place around the the year B.C. 18 or 19 by Augustus Caesar. These were family laws, laws largely dealing with divorce, dealing with adultery, dealing with financial incentives to have many children, And, and Ferguson says that they were aimed really at increasing the birth rate through encouraging marriage and a stable family life. Sounds good, but but then after discussing all of these legal improvements, this is his summary. He says the law probably did not improve morals, although it did increase blackmail. That's the way it goes, isn't it? That's the way it tended in Jewish society as well. Laws written on tablets of stone didn't actually make the people any more righteous. It simply meant that those who knew the law well could get away with just about whatever they wanted. And it opened, in this case, the case of divorce and remarriage, it opened this this system of legitimized adultery where wives could be traded like baseball cards. It trampled over all the security, all of the companionship that marriage was designed to provide for the family. Why? So men could justify their sins. So that they could go around and say, oh, no, 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 that one was in order. I did what I had to do. I wrote the bill of divorce and I gave it to her and I sent her away. All the paperwork has been done. It's okay. It's all in good order. And Jesus said, God knows your hearts. So before we can talk very much at all about about divorce, the first truth we need to know, the first question we have to ask about divorce is how are we approaching the issue? Are we approaching the issue legalistically? Are we approaching it looking for a loophole? Are we approaching it looking for how we can twist God's law to allow ourselves what we already know we want to do anyway? Or are we approaching the issue hoping to humble ourselves beneath what God's word has to teach us? If we approach it legalistically, we're already on the wrong track. Because legalism conceals a heart that despises God's designs. That's our first point today, the first truth, that legalism conceals a heart that despises God's designs. But secondly, God's design for marriage is permanent covenantal unity. John Stott once wrote, whenever someone asks to speak with me about divorce, I have now for some years steadfastly refused. I've made it a rule never to speak with anyone about divorce until I have first spoken with him or her about two other subjects, namely marriage and reconciliation. You can imagine how frustrating that might be. For the married person who goes to their pastor, to Pastor Stott while he was alive, and they just want to know, they feel stuck, they feel betrayed, they feel hurt, they want to know, is there anything that can be done? Is there any way out of this? And he refuses to talk about divorce until he lays some groundwork and talks about marriage. I hope you notice that is exactly what Jesus does as well. In Matthew chapter 19, when the Pharisees come and they, they come asking their questions about divorce, Jesus answers with marriage. Matthew chapter 19, beginning to read in verse 4. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female?" And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Stop right there. You Pharisees, you want to talk about separating. You want to talk about dividing a marriage. It's helpful to know what it is that you're dividing before you get too far along that road, isn't it? You see, divorce isn't as easy as just picking a new home. It's not as easy as splitting your bank accounts back into multiples. Divorce is is more like that magic trick where the beautiful assistant climbs into the box and then ends up sawn in two. It's supposed to be that way. That is, is God's design. Calvin says this, whoever divorces his wife tears himself in pieces because such is the force of holy marriage That the husband and wife become one person. That is God's design for marriage. To take two individuals, two human lives, and to so weave them together that it is impossible to separate them without destroying the fabric of who they are. And it's written all over his creational purpose in making humanity male and female corresponding equal and opposite reactions to one another, not just in terms of anatomy, but in, in terms of, of their approaches to, to nurture and to beauty and, and their gifting and their sensibilities and the way that they look at the world and a whole host of things. God ordained and, and engineered the differentiation of the sexes. Why? So that men could, could flex their uh, genetically uh, superior muscles and claim to rule over humanity. No. Not so so one sex, one gender, could rule over another. God ordained and and designed the differentiation of the sexes so that one man and one woman together could be more complete than either one of them could ever be by themselves. From the beginning, says Jesus, from the beginning, this is his design. God made marriage is the answer to human loneliness. That's the problem that he was seeking to address. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18 the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. And there are many things that come along with marriage children, and joy, and difficulty, and in laws, and all sorts of things that come along with marriage. What was God after? He was after loneliness. It's not good that the man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. This does not imply that those whom the Lord has called and gifted for the single life are somehow less than human, or somehow incomplete until until they are with a spouse. That is not what it means at all. It simply means that for most people, in most places, at most times, God's design, his intended remedy for the problem of companionship, is lifelong covenantal union, of biblical marriage. He says they shall leave father and mother. They shall cleave to one another. They shall become one flesh. That's God's original design. So that what God has joined together, man ought not to separate. In 2014, Jewel, the singer-songwriter Jewel, in 2014, Jewel separated Uh, from her husband of 14 years, Ty Murray. And here's how she explained the separation on her website. She said, the very thing Ty and I sought in coming together is the very thing we seek in separating. We both value growth, and growth became tragically and undeniably stifled as a couple, and we believe we can find it again in setting each other free. We truly believe we can find greater happiness apart than together, and this is why we're taking the enormous and heartbreaking step of divorce. I know it's low-hanging fruit to pick on celebrity marriages. Right? I know that we can think about people like that, and we can imagine that they live on a different planet than we will ever be, and it's not even the same thing, but maybe you read that, you hear that, and it sounds familiar to you. Maybe it sounds familiar because you've heard it from your neighbors, from your friends, as you watch their marriages dissolve into puddles. And you want to know why. But what, what's the breakdown? And they, they say, well, we believe that we can find happiness better alone than we can together. Maybe it sounds familiar because it sounds like the drumbeat of our Me First culture the culture that sacrifices everything and everyone on the altar of self-actualization. If there is anybody who stands in your way of you living your best life, your actualized life, your perfect truth, your authentic life, it's better to be done with them and move on by yourself. And maybe that sounds familiar. Maybe it sounds familiar because you've been whispering that to yourself in the quiet where no one else listens for quite some time now. Maybe it sounds familiar because you look at a marriage that is difficult. It's empty. It's unfulfilling, and you're tempted to believe that what God calls good really isn't. That maybe it would be better if man or woman could be alone again. That's a dangerous direction, brothers and sisters. Often the first step toward entertaining fantasies of divorce is that willful disbelief of the goodness of God's design for marriage. His design is not that we can find happiness more more readily apart than we can together. His design is for permanent covenantal unity. But if we want to say that we have a truly biblical approach, the issue of divorce, we also have to admit that that's not the end of the story. It's true, God has a perfect design. He has a plan for permanence, for for covenantal uh, companionship. The Lord has a plan for marriage that models the self-giving love of Christ for his bride, the church. It models the trust of of his bride, the church, as she submits herself to, to her head. God has a perfect creational design of one man and one woman living in fellowship, for better or for worse, for richer, for poorer, you know the rest, so long as they both shall live. God has a perfect design for marriage, but since the fall in the garden, God's perfect design has only ever been applied to very imperfect people. And our Lord is aware of our spiritual deformities. Christ is aware of the plague of sin that has infected our hearts and along with infecting our hearts has infected all of our relationships as well. He is aware that despite his design for marriage there are some sins which spouses commit against one another that have the potential to make a marriage unlivable. And God in his mercy has given permissions. For husbands and wives who have been sinned against in very particular ways to leave a marriage rather than to remain bound by a broken covenant. This brings us to our third point, that where covenantal unity has been broken, divorce is permitted. Listen to those words very carefully. The word is permitted, allowed. It's important to notice here that, that divorce actually is a biblical concept. It's not a biblical ideal. It's, it's never the biblical ideal, and it's not even a biblical invention. That's one of the differences between marriage and divorce. Marriage is a divine institution. It was given by God in the garden for humanity. Divorce is a human institution. Somebody dreamed it up. We don't know who it was, the, the first couple that, that got divorced. We have no idea the, the situations of their split, but we know that when divorce shows up in Scripture, it is It is regularly scheduled programming already in progress. But it shows up, and and God doesn't, when he gives the law to his people, he doesn't put his hands over his ears and say, oh, no, 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 I'm not paying attention to that. Nobody, Nobody does that in my kingdom. He recognizes divorce, and he regulates divorce. God has something to say about it. He puts boundaries, he puts limits on divorce, he puts it in its proper place so that divorce would not become the self-serving free-for-all that the liberal rabbis imagined it could be. And Jesus did the same thing during his ministry on earth. He recognized and he regulated divorce even among his people. He put boundaries around it. It's clear from Matthew's gospel that Jesus allows Christians to pursue a divorce in the case of marital infidelity. Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. It's a typo in your insert. Matthew 19, verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. There is an exception clause, isn't there? There is a legitimate reason. There is a permission for divorce. And that permission is sexual immorality. Why this permission? Why this allowance? Well, to quote Calvin again, he says, this exception is added for the woman, by fornication, cuts herself off as a rotten member from her husband and sets him at liberty. Now, we might add that this situation is the same in reverse. Right? Jesus was speaking about a man divorcing his woman, and so Calvin's talking about a man divorcing a woman, but the same thing is true if a man commits adultery against his wife, he sets her at liberty. And so we have the first allowance for divorce among God's people. Where the betrayal of adultery has left a marriage unmendable, it doesn't always leave it unmendable. Where the betrayal of adultery has left a marriage unmendable, the innocent party may seek a divorce with God's permission. That's the first allowance. But then the Apostle Paul adds another permission in his first letter to the Corinthians. You remember the context, I'm sure. Paul is dealing there with uh, the question of marriage, the question of singleness. He gets to the issue of what should we do if there is a mixed marriage, if there is a husband whose wife is not a believer, if there is a woman who worships Christ and her husband. Uh, serves Apollo and and what should she do if he berates her faith, if he thinks she's foolish for believing in a bodily resurrection if he thinks the the gospel is all hogwash and there is this fundamental divide between this husband and the wife because their worldviews are so diametrically opposed that there can be almost no peace in the home except that they live together and are kind to one another what should be done there? Is there a way out? Well, not if the believer makes the first move. If the unbeliever consents to stay in the marriage without cruelty, without violence, without sexual immorality, if the unbeliever consents to stay in the marriage, the believer may not flee. But, 1 Corinthians 7.15, but if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. Now, when you read that, remember that snare of legalism. This This is for those who fit into this category, and maybe you know some of them. This is not an invitation to play the game of how many ways can I alienate my spouse until I drive her away. Right? How can I make life so horrible that finally the unbeliever says, that's it, I'm done, I can't live with a Christian because they're terrible. That's not the point here. So long as it depends on you, be at peace with all men, Paul wrote. If peace is possible in the home, pursue that, even if there's an unbeliever. The believer must not seek to sabotage the marriage, but... In the event that the unbeliever separates, it might just be God's heartbreaking mercy to his child to set them free. Now, before we move on to the last point, there is always another question that comes up. And though I have to labor the point, it's always in the back of our mind. And the question is, I read Matthew 19, I read 1 Corinthians 7, are there any other exceptions Is there any other permission for for believers who, who trust in the New Testament? Are there any other exceptions or ways out of a bad marriage? And the answer is no. The Bible gives us two. Two legitimate grounds for divorce and two legitimate grounds for divorce only. There are no other permissions. There may be other applications of these two there is a pretty long-standing teaching in reformed circles. It goes back before the Westminster Confession to some of the early Puritans. There's a very long-standing teaching in reformed circles that if there is a man who is married to a wife and he has made the home life so violent and unsafe that she needs to flee for her life, for the life of her children, that man is to be considered a deserter. It goes on to say that if, if this man... Despite the discipline of the church, despite the the pressure of the civil magistrate, if this man will not repent, will not receive her back into the home, he is also to be counted as an unbeliever. So there are maybe different applications of this, but there are no other permissions. Only in the cases of adultery or desertion, where covenantal unity has been broken, divorce is permitted. But then the final word on divorce for the Christian is this. That even, even where divorce is permitted, God's design remains unchanged. Notice the approach, the second approach of the Pharisees back in in Matthew 19, verse 7. They come to him again. He has refused to answer their snare in the form of a question. And they say to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, the verse that they are most likely referencing, the verse that it's at the crux uh, of the interpretational difference on this issue of divorce in Israel, is Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. It's the basis for the debate. And and there, it was a very specific command dealing with a woman who had been divorced twice by two separate men, and it was a, a forbidding of that woman from going back to her first husband. It's a pretty specific situation, but in the context of that passage, Moses gives something, he writes something that sounds like a formula for divorce. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes, because he has found some indecency in her. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, and he puts it in her hand, and he sends her out of his house. There you have it. That's the formula, right? write a certificate, put it in her hand, send her out of your house. And the the, the Pharisees think of this verse and they think, we've got him cornered. Moses has commanded us. Why? If divorce is not in God's plan, why would Moses command it? There's no command in that verse. The only command in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4 is, she may not return to her first husband. That's the only command. And so Jesus corrects their language. Notice. Matthew 19, 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce. He allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. It's true. There are are divine permissions for divorce. There are permissions in the Old Testament. There are permissions in the New Testament. Even Jesus tells us what we are allowed to do in response to very specific sins, but there is no command. God has never said, thou shalt divorce your spouse if they do X, Y, or Z. There is no command in Scripture. And when we go to God inquiring, asking about a divorce, we should expect that his first word to us will be to point us to his design for unity, even when betrayal is present. When we come to God concerned about our rights in a difficult marriage, we should expect him to speak first to us about the privilege of forgiveness. How do we know that God will speak to us in that way? Because that's how God speaks of his own marriage. We tend to forget sometimes that that God is married in a way of speaking. We tend to forget also that God has been divorced. We tend to forget that God has been reconciled. But think about it, think of all those Old Testament prophets and their their condemnation of wayward Israel. Think of Jeremiah 3, think of Isaiah 50. Each of them say that like an adulterous spouse, Israel was sent away from God's presence with a bill of divorce. Think of God's legal rights to abandon the people who had broken fidelity with him through their transgression of the covenant. The Lord has a legitimate case against his bride. Then consider the Savior. Consider the one who came to lay down his rights. The one who came to take up the weight of his people's sin. Consider the Savior who gave himself up for the church, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy and without blemish. Sometimes forget that Christ had every right to abandon his bride, the church. He didn't exercise his his rights, he didn't even exercise his allowances. Instead, he showed us a more excellent way it's the way of forgiveness, it's the way of reconciliation, it's the way of loving your enemies so that they become your friends. And if you are here and this question of divorce is an issue for you, maybe you haven't told anybody about it. If this is an issue for you, I pray that you would consider God's dev- design for marriage not just in the garden, but also in the gospel. It may be that your marriage is, is simply harder than you expected and you thought that it would be getting easier by now. It may be that you have a legitimate ground for divorce that nobody else knows about outside of you and your spouse. If you are wrestling with these issues, do not wrestle alone. Share your struggle with your Christian brothers and sisters so that they can bear your burden and pray for you. Speak to an elder, speak to a pastor so that we can offer God's counsel to you. Far more importantly, above all, look to Christ Pray for the power of his Holy Spirit, that he would conform your marriage to his design. Paul tells the Thessalonians that he who calls you is faithful, and he will surely do it. May the Lord do so for our marriages, and for the marriages of those that we speak to and counsel and pray for. May he uphold us and keep us and present us without stumbling before his throne of grace. Let's pray. Gracious Lord and God, we thank you for the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you that though Jesus Christ had a case against his bride, yet he laid down his life for her, to sanctify her and to draw her to himself, to present her without wrinkle or spot or blemish. And we, O Lord, are your wayward bride. You have cleansed us and reconciled us. May you make us, in, in all of our relationships and our marriages and our friendships, and in, in all of uh, the ins and outs of our lives and our interactions with one another, make us forgiving, tender, and merciful as Christ has forgiven us. Help us, O oh Lord, to follow you and to love the design of marriage you have given us, even as difficult as it may be sometimes. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.